If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello and welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Silicon Valley editor, Connie Loises. I'm joined today by Crunchbase News' Alex Wilhelm. Hello. Hello. We also have a guest in studio today from New York, Anu Dougal, the co-founder of Female Founders Fund, which has backed a lot of really interesting companies from the wedding site platform Zola to the smartphone lending app Tala, which caters to people in underserved and emerging markets. Anu, thank you so much for swinging by today. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to see you. You too. Um, so... You know, we were going to talk about the week being sort of slow. In fact, uh, until about an hour ago, we were sort of talking about discussing the fact that there's been this, you know, a lot of talk and no action uh, yet on the IPO front. Then Reuters broke the news that um, Uber is planning to kick off its IPO in April, which is just next month and is also just right on the heels of the expected IPO of Lyft, which apparently is coming out at the end of this month. Yes. And this is uh, evidence that the uh, the news gods still hate this show because consistently <laughs> every single week we we get on and say, well, there was no, oh, all the news broke an hour ago. So, <laughs> right. Connie, uh, details here are that we expect the Uber IPO to hit the roadshow in April or to actually get live in April. Um, I think the, uh, I think it's got to issue its required public disclosure, the S1, and in launching its investor roadshow. And after that, I'm not really sure how long it takes. Is it maybe like a week later? So It's not long. So it yeah. could actually happen all together instead of April. Yes. That's super yeah. exciting. Very um, exciting. About time, I feel like. I mean, how long have we been talking about this? On like, let alone on this show, but just in general, I feel like this has been the exactly. longest. Exactly. There's been so much anticipation, and you know, I mean, a lot of these companies we sort of knew they'd filed confidentially. What in like December? There's just been so much confidential filing, and these things are coming, and they're coming, and I guess they are actually coming now. Yeah. Which you know, it's interesting. It has San Francisco completely freaked out. Are, is, are people in New York talking about these things? You know, I think they definitely are talking about it, but the impact it's going to have on San Francisco as a community, I think, will obviously be much greater, whether it's real estate prices, whether um, it's just the amount of liquidity in the market will be dramatically different, I think, than it compares to any other city in, in the United States. It's really uh, it's really so interesting. I, um, I, there was a study recently that um, it really depends on where the companies are located. So when Google and Facebook uh, came public, you know, there was a lot of wealth that was injected into um, this area, but it was spread out so much. The fact that these companies, Slack, Pinterest, Uber, Lyft, the fact that they're all in San Francisco. Postmates. All five of them. Yeah, is hugely problematic. And I'm trying to find this study right now, but it said something like, um, I think of the day that a company announces home... um, values within like a 10 mile range go up 1%. Um, and then after they go public, they go up another like 0.8% immediately. Not surprising it's at all. It's not surprising. And it's really kind of terrible given the sort of wealth inequality already, um, you know, challenging the city. So it's going to get worse, which I didn't think was possible. Yeah. I was just, I was just on my way here from therapy. I was talking to my Uber driver about this. He's like, SF has changed so much in 20 years. Here's what's changed. And we were joking about how today traffic is very good in the city. And that was like the first time that's happened in a hundred years. Yeah. Imagine when there's even more people and more money and a worse real estate market and more traffic. I mean, hot dang. This is going to be a mess. It's going to look like Manhattan in a way. Well, you know, also uh, this week, Anderson Horowitz, it was reported, uh, including by us, but we were re-reporting, um, based on the journal, and I had confirmed it with a source, that Andreessen Horowitz is moving an office to San Francisco. They're mm-hmm. looking at a, it's like a 40,000 square foot space, but my source said they're not going to be taking up the whole building. Um, Wait, 40,000 com- square feet? Yeah, right down the street, actually, Would you, uh, on Townsend. 
on town like Townsend and what? Uh, one one fifty. I'm not sure what the. Uh, if you're not in San Francisco, uh, that's not <laughs> useful. What we mean is, uh, TechCrunch's office is not in the coolest part of town. It's near Caltrain, <laughs> which is transit. Anyways, it, it means it's nearby and walkable from here, which is great. Right. So we can just drop by all the time and steal our snacks. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. But why Combinator, Kate Clark had reported, is very likely moving to San Francisco. So and anyway, there's a lot going on here. Good, bad, you know. The, I, I want to leave YC for a minute, but I sure. want to talk about the IPO climate in general. And I know this is a bit SF-focused, so sorry to our New York-based guests. No guest. problem. Um, <laughs> but we are, uh, It's tomorrow is March 15th, or today for everyone listening, it's March 15th, which is halfway through the last month of Q1, and there has been zero tech IPOs of note uh, for any U.S. Uh, companies, and I think that is a shocking result. I know there's been uh, problems with the SEC and the government shutdown, but the fact that for all, for all this hype through 18, that 19 was going to be the year that these companies get out, uh, I am shocked that nothing happened in Q1. Well, I think there's um, there's two ways to look at it. I mean, I actually think Q1 was incredibly active on the acquisition front. So whether you whether you look at Hotel Tonight and the Airbnb right. or uh, Spotify's acquisition of both Anchor and Gimlet Media, mm-hmm. um, I think that that was definitely unexpected and um, and was you know an indicator that there's still a lot of money out there. There's still I think going to be more acquisitions um, sure. as we move forward into 2019. But to our earlier point. You know, we have five coming up. Um, so I think it, it's more a question of all of them happening and popping at the same time mm-hmm. versus not happening in the first, um, call it eight weeks of, um, of, of the year. You know, one thing um, with regard to Airbnb, um, one of the founders, uh, Nathan, had given an uh, interview to Business Insider earlier this week, and he made it sound like it's not, you know, a sure thing that they're going to go public this year, which I thought was really interesting. And there was speculation at the travel site Skift that its acquisition of Hotel Tonight might be part of the reason that they want to sort of absorb this and figure out its strategy. So they bought this company for a reported more than four hundred million in cash and stock, um, and Hotel Tonight gives them access to hotel rooms and um, sort of better enables them to cater to guests who are looking for last-minute accommodations, which they couldn't really do before. But this could be a huge part of their business. So it'll be interesting to see if that the one of the five uh, doesn't sort of happen this year. Why do you have to figure everything out before you go public? What a lazy (laughs) perspective. (laughs) You know, traditionally, you would go public and then still figure Figure something out. I know, I know. It wasn't like, we're only going to go public when it's absolutely perfect. We don't want to answer the shareholders. There's also no perfect time. Right. Amen. But you know what would have been a good time, though? Q1, when the stock market got better from Q4, would have been well, a fantastic you know, time I think to that, debut. That 35-day shutdown, I think, just sort of yeah, totally screwed everything up. into yeah. people's plans. All right. Maybe I'm being too persnickety <laughs> about this. But I, I will say that aside from Lyft, and I guess now maybe Uber. Uber yeah. Oh, okay. Actually, you know what? My point here in the notes doc says, no big IPOs lead Alex. And then Uber <laughs> drops its thing. So now I'm, I'm looking a little bit silly. <laughs> but if Lyft goes off and then Uber does follow in uh, timing we're expecting. Right. Yeah, I, weeks my point later. will be defeated. If there's any delays there off, yeah. it'll be a bit a bit messy. But and you have Pinterest as well. That, uh, that's also right, up which the street. Is, yeah. It's coming in April, yeah. I think, is the plan. Is, is that the latest, April? I think so. That's what I've heard. How, uh, not to put you on the spot, but on a confidence interval, is that like a 60% chance? Like if you were to... I, I honestly, probably, at most. Okay, yeah. at most yeah. is 60. Okay, yeah. so like a 50-50. Uh, my email is alex at crunchbase.com. <laughs> Feel free to say hello. Uh, anyways, the point is, uh, slow Q1, but it looks like uh, Q2 is going to be revving up uh, mm-hmm. for two big IPOs, and they will set the tone for ride-sharing, venture capital raising around the the world, and also for the unicorn IPO crop moving forward. So it's going to be a hell of a 
hell to do. I'm excited about this. I'm excited too, but it is sort of one. I'm curious to see what happens. You know, like there's a lot going on. I mean, Brexit is still sort of a question mark. Mm-hmm. We're still having this, these trade issues with China. I mean, there's still a lot of uncertainty. So the I don't. The wall still an issue. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. So I don't know what, what's going to happen. Oh, I think the we're... American political climate. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about the, um, the Uber self-driving round that may be coming together? So I think uh, everyone saw the news this week that Uber is looking, according to various reports, for about a billion dollars to help fund its self-driving unit. And naturally, if you're a friend of the show, you know this, SoftBank is involved. (laughs) Shockingly enough, through the Vision Fund, and uh, I'll put a quarter of my Vision Fund uh, swear jar for saying that. Um, But I think my perspective on this is, and and please, Anu, tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, Uber needs to clean up its losses if it's going to be a successful public company. And to do so, it needs to get uh, its cost structure down. And one place you can do that is to have other people pay for your research arm effectively. And so if you can raise a billion dollars to put into your self-driving unit that's not from you, you can have a much cleaner uh, net income looking forward. And so to me, this makes a lot of sense. But here's my question. How the hell do you commercialize Uber's self-driving tech if you're not Uber? So why would you put money into this unit? Is it a spinoff? I don't understand the structure uh, of what this could be. Sure. So, I mean, I don't have um, probably any more information than you do on the structure, um, but I do think that it's, to your point, very smart in terms of getting them closer to a balance sheet that makes sense as a, as a public company. And I think, you know, you saw you saw this with Google as well. Um, granted, that was post um, going public that it just makes sense after a while to spin off these more mm-hmm. um, risky, if you want to call them that, businesses. Um, so I'm I'm not surprised at all. In fact, speaking of that, I think was was it the information that reported that Waymo might be looking for outside funding for the very first time? Oh, good point. Yeah, which yes. is really interesting. So, but no, no, I was gonna say, but I'm, I'm like you, I'm not really clear on exactly how this will work. I know that well, according to the Financial Times reported last fall that uh, Darak, the CEO of Uber, was even like thinking about potentially com- like t- totally spinning it off. I mean, because it was such you know to sort of get their costs uh, more in line. So, what's it worth? Um, I, I think the journal said they were going to be investing a billion at a like a mm, maybe like a five or six billion dollar valuation. So, so that sounds fine, and it sounds kind of if we had all had to guess, right. if it was a one billion dollar infusion, probably about twenty percent. So call it a six yeah. billion post money. Fine. Uh, what? Why is it worth five billion? By by what metric? By what standard? Is it the best? Do you do this by like number of human takeovers per mile recorded over the last million miles, virtual or real? Is there any way to value this other than magic? I mean, ultimately, I think, you know, it's whatever the market will give you. Right. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's particularly in, in, in this type of um, company, right, where you do have a lot of losses, where you ha- don't have real proof of product market fit yet. So I think right. that, you know, to your point, 20% for, for what they've built, to me, strikes me as being um, pretty fair. And this would be with Toyota, which you would assume sort of has some sense of what things are worth. Uh, so SoftBank and Toyota yes. yeah. um, would be investing in this unit. So interesting stuff for sure. It is. Uh, it won't, of course, happen, though, before the uh, the IPO, I wouldn't presume, or it would probably delay it. This is a material transaction. You can't really oh, do two things at the Got same it. time. Mm. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. But let's scoot along to something that's caught our eye this week, which is the stash round, which Connie, you wanted to talk about, uh, which I think was a $65 million infusion. 
Yes. Uh, well, you know, it was what it was interesting to me about this was we were talking uh, with Jeff Clavier a couple of weeks ago about Acorn's big round um, and the fact that there are these sort of up and coming companies that are catering to people who, um, you know, they're not like the wealth management services like Betterment, Wealthfront cater to people who've got like a, s- assets and want to kind of be more hands on with them and maybe pay less in financial advisor fees. There's other firms that are kind of catering very new, newly minted uh, people with <laughs> assets um, who are just trying to figure it out. And I think Stash is one of these. It's three years old. It's based in New York. Um, and uh, so Acorns had raised a Series E at the time. And we were saying, oh, it's kind of funny. Stash is around the same age. I wonder if a Series mm-hmm. E is coming. And in fact, this is at Series E, $65 million. Interestingly, it's not saying who fueled the round. I'm not really sure why. But um, as our colleague at TechCrunch, uh, Ingrid, had mentioned yesterday, it was sort of funny because Jim Breyer of Breyer Capital um, released a statement about the company saying, oh, it's new technology. We'll have CEOs and CMOs knocking on their door. So we can probably assume that Jim Breyer is an investor, which is great. Uh, its other backers include Union Square Ventures from from uh, past rounds, Co2 and uh, Valor Ventures. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the uh, the round timing because I think it is very fitting in with what Acorns and Chime have done. The mm-hmm. neobanking trend is here to stay. With mm-hmm. this amount of capital in, they're going to have several years of runway, I presume. So whatever this is, we'll keep going. I'm curious how much uh, space there is to grow accounts very quickly. Chime, I'm remembering numbers after memory, went from 1 million accounts to 3 million accounts between rounds. Very impressive. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many more millions of accounts there are domestically to get that will be that easy. It will get harder. That'll boost uh, customer acquisition costs. That'll lower margins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, also, we don't know what the valuation was for this round. Now, we don't Thanks. always know. A lot of companies keep it to themselves, which is rude, and they should tell us. But we do know that the Series D, the preceding round for um, Stash, was at a $350 million valuation, I believe, post-money. Oh, is and that this right? was supposed to be much higher. Okay. Um, how high, I don't know. But that I, I don't like it when we don't know so much stuff. It's, it, feel, <laughs> it feels weird to me to not disclose investors, to not have better notes about valuation. Um, and that always puts up my, my bad news radar. But it's hard in this case to to make a bad news case. Well, I think what you're seeing um, more and more is a couple things as it relates to larger rounds. So I think, A, you know, we've seen this in New York for sure where companies are either not announcing or delaying announcing a round. Um, And I think that can be for a host of different reasons. But Can you tell the listeners just a couple of those? um, So – there's not any in particular that come to mind, but I do know it's a trend that people in the venture capital industry um, have been have been talking about. And some of those actually may be companies that have not yet announced even <laughs> even yet. So um, but even within our own portfolio, I think, you know, the question of when you raise a 50 million dollar plus round. Um, and you have very strong competitors, mm-hmm. um, does it make sense to announce it or to just get to work right. is um, is something that is is very real. So uh, so I do think it it could be part of that. Sure. Um, but uh, but I think, you know, to your earlier point, just around this industry, I think you will start to see higher acquisition costs. I think that, um, you know, they're one to three million is obviously great, um, but how many more are there, and what are you going to pay to to acquire those counts mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for? I think is is a very real question. And and Robinhood is another big player on this front mm-hmm. too. So there are you know. Yeah, but Robinhood is kind of in like the stocky bit and the crypto bit. You got Wealthfront and uh, Betterment in the more focused on investing bit, mm-hmm. and then you have Acorns, Chime, Stash, which are almost more in the banking bit. Mm-hmm. But they're all kind of related, they, and they're bleeding into one another. Exactly. As time they goes all, I think they all see themselves ultimately as like you know the next big financial services company with everything. Well, I was I was reading about the Stash round um, before the show just to prep a little bit, and first of all, they have a new partnership with Green Dot, which is a bank. 
And um, they're working with a thing called Stockback, which I think is some sort of rewards program that gives you like points into companies that you buy stuff from. And it's a way to get people to invest a bit like Acorns, which is Do a way to save. Do you get stock in the company? I, I think or? so. Or shares in a quote, an ETF approved by Stash. Okay. So I, I, I think if you like pay for Netflix with your your their payment system, you mm-hmm. get something. Mm-hmm. If I'm wrong, someone correct me, but that's close enough. And so this is definitely a blend into the Robinhood space. And that's why there's just more bleeding around the edges. Um, but I think it's great. How fun would it be now to be just turning 18 and have a plethora of no fee, consumer friendly banking options? My campus had Citibank. Yeah. That was it. You <laughs> right. know what? I still am a Citibank customer and they suck. Well, I mean, I think all of these commercial banks, ultimately, the margins are so thin that the the way they think about customer service and just the entire customer experience has so much to to desire. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, to your point, if you're 18 and you're graduating from college or going into college, you you actually don't even think that I need to open up in a Citibank account because that's what my parents did. You open up your phone and you say, what are the apps that can give me the most efficient and, you know, best customer experience? Right. and so I think you, over time, you'll start to see that stack develop over, you know, whether it's into savings, checkings. Uh, I mean, there's so many directions that, that these um, fintech companies can can move into. Um, and we see that, you know, even with Tala, which is obviously focused more on emerging markets. But once you own that customer and, and, um, and you know, they have a share of their mind space, there's so much you can do with it. Absolutely. It's so smart. And, and speaking of shares, I think the fact that they're connecting people with companies from a young age is so, so smart. And I'm sure the companies love it because they want these people to be shareholders from the time they're 18 graduating yes. until they're, you know. Uh, one last thing about that. The, the underbanking problem in America is real. And the financial services aimed at people of less means are bad and predatory. And so if we can build better tools that don't take advantage of people who have the least which is how the American banking system works. Fees are higher for low-dollar accounts. Overdraft fees are excessive and punitive. Um, Extortionary, really. And so shame on the big banks for what they've done to America's poor. And viva these new apps. The downside is you have to have a smartphone to take part, and that is a significant hurdle towards adoption. But at a minimum... There are better options available for more people, and I hate to sound positive about a startup, but like I like this sort of thing. I like this happy. one too. I don't. I don't like. I wouldn't sort of in a blanket way say they're all great because I think they're all a little bit predatory, to be honest. But um, hopefully less predatory than what we've had in the past. Well, speaking about big piles of money that people have access to, uh, there are some changes over at Y Combinator that we have discussed on the show when they were hypothetical or pending, and I think we should just riff on them really quickly sure. to make sure everyone knows what's up at uh, what was formerly a small accelerator down in the South Bay that has now become a globe-straddling financial machine. Uh, and most critically, uh, Sam Altman uh, is no longer going to be in charge of it. Sam Altman is someone that I've only met once or twice. I don't know him personally at all, but I think he's played an integral part in Y Combinator's growth out of what it used to be, which was kind of a small collective, kind of more punk rock than uh, mainstream pop. And now it's, you know, the Ariana Grande of finance. So... Um, because it's, quote, run as a partnership, uh, YC claims there'll be no significant operational change. That's a quote. But they're doing a ton of stuff. In their blog post announcing the shift, they noted that they launched something called Startup School, the, quote, Series A program, the, quote, YC Growth program, the, quote, Work and Startup program, and, quote, YC China. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of operations, um, but certainly this is a, a shift. And finally, bringing uh, Connie's earlier point back, they are looking for space in San Francisco because the center of gravity in Silicon Valley has moved all the way up to the top of the bay and the little city to be all called home. And I'm curious, in our last couple of minutes, what we think about this. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, you you laid it out so so well. Um, YC has obviously evolved um, and really expanded their, their product offering. Um, and I think, to a large degree, that's due to the strength of the brand. Um, I think, you know, they were early. They 
picked some great early companies um, that really built on their success and, and quite frankly, enabled them to expand into, for example, YC China or um, launch a growth fund. Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, I think, you know, Sam obviously has played a huge role in this. Um, and I do agree that, you know, moving to San Francisco seems to be very in line with, you know, the larger trend that we're seeing in terms of um, companies relocating here. So um, so I think that, you know, they're only going to continue to launch and, and to grow, um, which I think is, is really exciting for them. Yeah, my sense, I had done a story uh, sort of asking whether Sam was um, good or bad for YC, you know, when somebody leaves. And he because he sort of came through like a whirling dervish and shook up a lot of things and now is out the door. Um, but um you know, my sense from talking to uh, people in the community was that it was very much a net positive that he introduced lots of products uh, to the company, as you were saying, Anu, um, and that it's going to be sort of run seamlessly because it really is like a machine. And they, they still have uh, Sam is still chairman of the board. They have the founders, uh, Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston on the board. Uh, they have the same CEO, Michael Siebel, who's been there for almost four years, kind of running the core program. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just you know, continue to, will continue to click long. And it's never been more popular. Uh, YC noted that they had a 30% increase. I think it was a year over year in class mm. applications up to 12,000 for their most recent batch. And that's just a staggering number oh, of yes. ideas and founders and people out there who are interesting and trying to change things. Yeah. It's encouraging in a way that there are so many. Um, and I guess I don't want to ever go back to the computer history museum or whatever that place is for demo day. <laughs> I know, I Because the commute was bad and the food was worse. So it's going to be good to, to be at home. And I think that's all the time we have uh, for this week, everybody. So thank you for coming. Anu, it's yes, been lovely to have you. Anu. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. We'll be back in seven days, everyone. Stay cool. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. And we will see you all right here next week. <laughs>